Hey folks, Stir Crazy's been off for a couple weeks. I thought it was important to take a pause and focus on what's been happening in the aftermath of George Floyd being murdered at the hands of the Minneapolis police. I didn't want to start this episode the same way I normally do, with the scrambled voice and then cue the music. It feels wrong not to acknowledge what's been happening, and since this is one of my platforms, I wanted to say some stuff. First, I simply would not be the musician I am were it not for the contributions and influence of the amazing black musicians who shaped and in many cases invented and pioneered the sounds of jazz, funk, blues, fusion, hip-hop, rock and roll, punk, metal, and electronic music. A good portion of the music I've made and played professionally has been with black musicians. And while I'm grateful that my presence and input has mostly always felt welcomed and respected, I have no delusions about where that music comes from. And it's an honor just to be included. But with that honor comes responsibility of having awareness and understanding, and it goes way deeper than how music feels when I play bass. Being a musician has given me access to all other kinds of musicians many of whom have different backgrounds and life experiences that are different than mine. It's made the world smaller and has provided a glimpse into the way other people live. But it's also made me realize that many of us do not have the same set of worries on the post-gig drive home. Like I've never felt that I had to worry about being pulled over. And sadly, I have many friends who could not say the same thing. And some that have definitely had bad experiences with cops. It didn't occur to me that it would take the elimination of almost every distraction due to the lockdown and shelter in place from the coronavirus for people to maybe just be fed up and finally consider what black Americans have been dealing with not only in regards to police brutality but systematic racism. The events since George Floyd was killed has many white people re-examining their roles in this you hear the word ally getting tossed around a lot. Whether that's identifying where privilege lies, accepting the reality that there is racism and inequality in many facets of life that aren't always obvious and are often overlooked. And then finally, the reckoning that this is hardly a new problem. It's centuries old, and it's been plaguing every system we have in this country in so many ways. But people are finally seemingly angry enough to do something about it and show their support. And I say good, because it's about fucking time. We all need to do our part in reminding every person in this country, including our dickhead president, that black lives matter. Today my guest is Divinity Rocks. She's probably best known for playing in Beyonce's band, and I'm sure you've all seen one of those great concert videos where she's tearing it up. Before that, she played in Victor Wooten's band for five years. And she's also played with people like Jay-Z, Nona Hendrix, Will I Am, Erica Badu, Patti LaBelle, Gladys Knight, a bunch of other people. And besides that, she also has a solo project, which is a combination of funk, hip-hop, and rock. Divinity and I chatted on June 4th. And we covered all kinds of things. We talked about racism. We talked about what's going on now. We've talked we talk about making beats. We talk about playing bass. We talk about like different types of rhythmic styles. Um, it's, it was a really good conversation we had. I enjoyed the hell out of it. And here's how that went. 
you know, I always see see your posts on Twitter, and I'm always like co-signing. I'm like, yeah, that's that's right. I agree with that. I know we're always going back and forth on Twitter, liking each other's stuff, reposting. I think I even mentioned you in a tweet. Not oh yeah, ago, something you said. I was like, yeah, just like he said. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you know, as frustrating as a platform as that can be, sometimes, and and. I can't really overstate that enough. Um, it is good to see people sharing their opinions and stuff. Um, even if, I, I mean, there's definitely a, a cap on what, what I'm willing to read that I don't agree with, but like, it's just even, you know, you, you hear different things sometimes. And, and I think if it's not people being trolls, there's, there's value sometimes in seeing what people are talking about. Yeah, it's not like Facebook where people have these long ass posts and they go back and forth and they're arguing and fighting and and never really getting anywhere. Um, There are quite a bit of trolls, quite, you know, quite a few trolls I see and bots and different things like that, that are there to aggravate you and piss you off. Um, But I don't know. It's so interesting because in the past, I think two years, Twitter became a platform for me where I would talk about things that I wouldn't talk about in other places on social media. Right. Uh, And most of it was centered around my, I guess, my political views and my ideas about, you know, living in this world and what it's like, especially um, under 45. So, Mm -hmm sort of turned into something else the first the first year i joined twitter i was in the beyonce band and twitter was not very popular this is like when when social media was people were trying to figure out how to use social media and so i was trying to figure it out too and i remember being in rehearsal at sir and terry mugler was like the creative director for the tour and he was getting ready to come to SIR and there had been lots of chatter on you know all the blogs and you know all the different areas of of the internet you know talking about this partnership with Beyonce and Terry Mugler but I was in it you know what I mean Mm -hmm. so I just tweeted Terry Mugler is on his way to rehearsal right now. Like, yo. You know, like, because Twitter was like in the moment. It was like, yo, you could talk about what was happening right now. And people went crazy. And actually, Matthew Knowles came into the rehearsal space and was like, hold up. <laughs> you yeah. can't do that. <laughs> and I was like, well, I didn't say where we were. I was smart enough not to do that. Yeah. And there was no big secret that he was involved. So I was sort of like verifying for people like, yeah, it's real. It's going down. He's actually coming in the room right now. But uh, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was really funny. And I think, I think even for them, it was like, uh-oh, we have this new, this new technology to navigate as, uh, you know, as artists. And, um, and, you know, soon after that, we had like these social media discussions and stuff. But, yeah. Yeah, I remember the first month I was on Twitter, I didn't know what to do with it. Like, I think I that, there's a way you can actually go back to your very first tweets. I forget there's a website that lets you do it. But I think I think because I, I remember what I was doing at that time, I was preparing for a tour with um, Cindy Blackman and Vernon Reed, and we were rehearsing in Williamsburg. And I think I literally wrote, I just went and got a sandwich before rehearsal, you know, and like, cause I, I was just unsure of like what, 
one, like who was actually going to be reading that and two, um, you know, like how many people were actually on there. It just felt very kind of new and undefined, you know, cut to 11 years later, uh, people are telling the president to fuck off and not, you know what I mean? Like in very, <laughs> in <Totally>. very, <laughs> I literally told him that the other day, yeah, yeah. you bro, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny, you know, that, that we are using <laughs> platforms for those purposes, but there's also a lot of information. I mean, honestly, Twitter is where I get most of my news because mm -hmm happening in real time. As a matter of fact, the Ahmad Arbery case is being, um, is being presented right now um, down in Georgia. And I wouldn't have known that had I not been scrolling Twitter and seeing this reporter reporting in real time, the conversations that were being had in the courtroom. And so it prompted me to go online to, you know, get more information because there's so much happening right now that I, I don't want to miss out on that and how that plays out. Yeah. Um, because how that plays out is going to, is going to determine how a lot of things play out, uh, right now. Sure. Um, one of the things that really sparked the outrage. Um, but then like what happened, uh, in Minneapolis was, I mean, it was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. Absolutely. I'm, I'm surprised it didn't happen sooner, um, given how, because like when Eric Garner was murdered, I remember seeing that video and really thinking like, this is going to change something. And when it didn't, or, you know, when it, when it didn't have the impact that I, was expecting it would because it's like how do you even dispute what you're watching um it's like right there uh and, and people, were I, mad. people were in the streets people were angry yeah they weren't rioting yeah they weren't rioting they I, were angry and i think that's part of why everybody is so you know everybody who's complaining about the rioting are pissing off everybody else because it's like listen we've been marching and we've been screaming and we've been yelling and we've been protesting. I mean, Ferguson was, was in flames, but like you said, this was a tipping point. Mm -hmm. And I think the pandemic had something to do with it. You know, everything has a tipping point. hundred percent. When we go back and look at everything that led up to this moment, um, I think people would be able to explain why this particular incident was the one that that caused uh, the outrage that it did. I mean, I woke up that morning and looked at the news and saw it and just f fired off a tweet about it and was like, what, why do, why do these people hate us so much? I just don't get it. And I read the article that accompanied the picture and it was so full of garbage mm -hmm. about how the video hadn't been verified and you know we really don't know what really happened and you know it was such a ho-hum sort of article and then three hours later the world erupted <laughs> behind it yeah and, and they went and changed the article and i was so angry that i didn't screenshot it before um just to talk about just to just to show how 
oftentimes the media downplays these incidents. And that may be why people aren't outraged in the beginning, you know? Yeah. I also think we've been, there's, there's less distractions now because you've got all these people who are out of work. Um, you've got all these, you know, everyone's been kind of in inside for a couple months for the most part, and you can't really hide from the truth. And I think it, when you are forced to look at it, like there's no place, like people haven't really been able to have the escapism that they probably have in their day-to-day lives. Like they're not running around as much. So I think when something like that is just blatantly kind of in your face, I mean, it could, it could be, you know, just pent up aggression from being, being in. But I think it's also like, you can't really ignore what that looks like, you know, like the look on that guy's face, you know what I mean? Like just the whole thing and and it's maddening and it's disgusting, but I, I really think, I really think um, there's, there's some credence to the idea that if you distract people enough, they're not going to see what it is. But I think, some of that's been lifted to the point where enough people saw it and got pissed off. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it, I, I would definitely refrain and be very careful how I would say, Oh, this, this is a good thing, but there, there's some positive results that could come from, from a time period where people are this angry and, and, uh, you know, uh, inspired to, to, to exercise their voice. But, you know, yeah, my friends are my friends. Uh, so I have a I have a group chat that I am on with my friends from high school. There are mm-hmm. twelve of us, all black women, um, and we've been really good friends for so many years. Um, and it's interesting because the conversations, <laughs> the conversations on that chat can be really, really interesting. I mean, we talk about <laughs> everything and we're very open. I mean, there are some conversations I'm like, I'm, I'm going to stay out of this one, you know. But um, <laughs> one of the things that I find really interesting is one of my good friends is, keeps posting and sharing uh, emails from all of the companies who are making statements now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of them work, a lot of my friends work in corporate America and, you know, you know, some of them are teachers and some of their husbands or spouses work in corporate America and they're having these, uh, these conversations that they haven't had before with the corporations they work with. And they've expressed, you know, that the, the, the tension that they felt as black people working in these companies before and, and not having some of their grievances addressed, you know, and having to sort of having having their complaints sort of, you know, uh, played down or, you know, what people are normally doing. Um, like you said, when they're distracted with everything else and it's hard to see the blatant um, racism for lack of a better word that's in their faces and uh it's just so interesting because my friends are like wow this is kind of blowing my mind that people are releasing these statements and and having these conversations i mean you know some of my friends are still doing zoom calls and the beginning of zoom calls you have these people who are in high positions in companies and corporations stopping and and addressing this in a way that kind of feels uncomfortable for black people. It's kind of like, mm, I don't 
know if I want to talk about this with you right now, right here on the job. Like, we've been trying to address this for a long time. I'm not quite sure how I feel about being put on the spot right now. So that's really interesting. And I haven't been able to really wrap my head around it because I don't, I don't, I don't operate in that way in the mm. world. You know what I mean? Do they find that it does it come off as disingenuous or is it the kind of thing no, where it's no, like one of my friends is like, I am just overwhelmed that like some of these emails have brought tears to her eyes. Some organizations that she's worked with in the past yeah, are right. reaching out to people from the past and bringing things up and out. And, you know, there's some apology. There's some apologies. There's some awareness that was never there before. And I think that's one of the good things that's coming out of this is that there's this mm -hmm. overall awareness that wasn't there before. Um, it's interesting, though, because it's interesting because <laughs> and I said this to my friends the other day, I said, it's almost like when Obama became president. It's so and I don't know if, if, if I don't want to come off wrong when I say this, but no, that's fine. White people were nicer. <laughs> yeah. I would go to the airport and people would be nicer. I couldn't explain it. At first, I called I call one of my homeboys and I was like, yo, dude, <laughs> have, you know, have you noticed that white people are a little bit nicer when you're like walking on the street? And like, you know, a lot of times you're walking on the street, you're a black person and two white people are walking towards you. And it's like, shit, who's going to move out of the way in order for us to all pass on the, on the fucking sidewalk? And a lot right. of times you like feel like people are like knocking you off the sidewalk when you're black. Like, yo, come on, man. Give me some. <laughs> I'm, I'm a human being, too. I'm here. I'm taking up space. But it was like people were stepping out of the way. People were like, hi, how you doing? You know, like it was just really different. And then when 45 became president, you go through the airport, there was like this tension that was like, yo, uh-oh, I called my boy. I was like, yo, dog, do you feel like <laughs> things kind of went awry a little bit? And he's like, yeah, man, I totally feel it. He's like, I was just thinking that too. So it's just this weird, it's, it's interesting. It's just really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I've been, you know, I've been reading uh, and checking out some stuff. Um, my friend sent me this clip of an interview uh, with Robin D'Angelo, who wrote this book called White Fragility. And I'm going to read this book, but it's a 10 minute interview. And she talks about like Obama and um, she talks about Trump and she talks about Obama. I can send you this clip. It's pretty, pretty interesting, but th there's, there's, you know, there's layers to the whole thing about, um, like the white voters in Obama and, you know, and, I, and I'm one of them, but like they, you know, it's funny. Cause like Jordan Peele kind of poked at this and get out. Like, did you see get out? Did you? Oh yeah. Yeah. So like there's, cause you know, the, the one thing that, um, the one thing I heard sometimes during Obama's eight years was like a couple people. And I don't know specifically who, like I, I've, I've, I remember reading it in, in articles and stuff, but, people kind of had this idea of like a post race, post racial America. Um, yeah. or, and I don't know if that, that, that obviously wasn't true because, because there's, there's things, you know, I mean, there's, there's like this mentality that I think some people, some white folks had that like, okay, we got a black president. So that means this and that, but it, it, it 
did create a blind spot, I think, for for people that wanted to use that as a total metric for where stuff was. Because, you know, there were still issues with, like, the prison system and... And the police. Yeah, the police. Exactly. So... More blatant under Obama, in a way. Like, it was... And then Trump kind of kind of galvanized the people that really didn't like, you know, what it was like under Obama. And, you know, so it's like different things have been exposed and, and um, it hasn't been great to see. It's been very, um, you know, disturbing, like even just kind of wondering like where are the mechanisms to protect these things from happening? Like now that we've seen for like far too long, like, you know, you wonder who's really got your back that's in the Senate or that's in, you know, your, your elected officials, like who's really coming in there trying to like protect the people, you know, and, and that's been a really weird thing. You know, uh, this pandemic has made me feel like we're kind of on our own, you know, in a, in a yes. weird way. I mean, when you think about it, we are, we have been, my wife and I stopped going into the city. Uh, I believe it was March 4th. Mm-hmm. And I remember that day because I was wearing a mask because we travel. We're musicians. So we mm-hmm. we travel the world. We've been exposed to people wearing masks uh, in the airport and in the airplane. And if you've if you're a musician who's traveled internationally, you've gotten sick on a plane. Oh, yeah. You know I mean? And so, like, I got the flu on a plane one time and I said, you know what? I am. <laughs> always going to wear, I'm just going to, people going to look at me like I'm crazy. I don't care. I'm wearing a mask. So I started wearing a mask to go into the city when we heard about this virus in China. And the first thing we thought was, well, it can't stay there forever because people are traveling everywhere. Like we just thought that me and my wife. Um, And so, you know, we're in New York. I went to Nam and I didn't stay at Nam the whole time, but I was very aware of the fact that Nam is a place uh, everybody comes from all over the world to go to Nam. Exactly. So I missed I, you this year. Yeah, because I was only there for a day. I played the She Rocks Awards. Mm-hmm. And on Saturday morning, I went to see everybody, went to see uh, Warwick and went to see. Aguilar and went to see, you know, see all my people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I had to fly out and go do a show with Fantasia. So I didn't get to spend the whole weekend at NAMM. And a few of my friends got really sick at NAMM, but they didn't know what they had. You know, there's Mm -hmm. NAMM Thrax, but there was something else happening at NAMM. Yeah, I heard about this. Yeah. so So my wife, I came back to New York. I started wearing a mask to go into the city. And one day, I went through the turnstile with a mask on. Not many, nobody was wearing a mask at this point. Uh, people were actually encouraged not to wear them, but I wasn't having that shit because I didn't want to get sick. And I went through the turnstile and this police officer stopped me and accused me of jumping the turnstile. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> First of all, <laughs> I didn't understand what he said because he he definitely wasn't American. He was he I think he was Russian or something. Mm-hmm. He said something, and I was like, "Excuse me." And he said it again, and I'm like, <laughs> "I don't know if my mind just couldn't wrap my mind couldn't wrap itself around the idea that I would be accused of jumping the turnstile." And he had this thick accent, so I just kept saying, "What? <laughs> what?" And then that was that made him feel a certain way because. 
his English was not great. And then finally, I understood him and I had my Metro card in my hand. And I just held it up to him and said, and removed my mask and said, why would I do that when I have this? And just looked at him like, fucking idiot. I mean, I was angry mm. because... I would never jump the fucking turnstile. And why would you accuse me of that when you didn't see me do it? <laughs> yeah, it's unreal. It's it was unreal. so, it was, it was unreal. I came home and I said to my wife, babe, this police officer just accused me of jumping the turnstile and the train station. I had a mask on. I was like, I'm black, of course. So he just saw a criminal. So I think it's best that I don't go back into the city um, because I'm going to wear a mask anyway. So she was just like, I get it. Stay home. Don't go back out. And so we, we started uh, quarantining before, before we were ordered to pretty much. Wow. Um, are you, you're in Jersey? Is that where you guys are? Yeah. I'm in a little town called West New York, New Jersey. <clears throat> okay. Super tiny little town, probably about six blocks. Jersey is so weird to me with all their, their little towns. Yeah. Um, we're a little bit north of Hoboken. Okay. And really close, right next door to Weehawken. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I know that area um, fairly well um, just from either leaving the city or um, just driving around. And not being sure how to get back on the highway. Um, it's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's like that. There's like that big library in Weehawken that looks like a castle. I think. Yeah, um, I wanted to go up there too. Yes, and that's right near the highway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, and and so have you? Have you been near the city at all, or you just been kind of staying? Put like, what have you been doing since since you guys started quarantining? Well, it was, I mean, it was actually kind of good for me because I had been traveling since October. And so I was a little mm -hmm. bit tired of traveling um, and ready to be home. So I just, you know, whenever I'm home, I like to be home if I'm not traveling for work. Um, I hardly go out anyway. Um, so we stopped going into the city. We kind of hunkered down and I, I'm in school at Berkeley Online. Oh, cool. What are you studying? My bachelor's. I'm, I'm getting an interdisciplinary degree um, with a focus on music production and music business. Cool. So this semester I'm taking music licensing and microphones, which I love this microphone class. It's so much fun. Um, so I just really, you know, got into my work. Um, I've been working on an album off and on. So I kind of dealt, you know, I kind of worked on that a little bit. I haven't been working on it as much as I should. Um, I've been doing all kinds of things. I have been studying my Spanish because my wife is Cuban and she speaks Spanish fluently and I don't. Um, we were working out. I love riding my bike, but I went out and rode my bike and fractured my wrist and my elbow. So then there was no more bass playing, no more bike riding for a while. Uh, are, you, so, are you cool now? I'm pretty good. I mean, I still have a little bit of pain yeah. in my wrist, so I'm trying not to play as much. Gotcha. Um, let's see. I mean, I've been doing the most, actually. Uh, doing a lot of um, Zoom stuff. Um, I was doing lessons, but of course I had to stop. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, I've really been getting my catalog together. That's kind of where my focus has been because I'm taking this music licensing class. So I'm really doing all the back work that you have to do in order to be a proper publisher. Um, I also wrote in some children's music and I've been licensing that music. And so I've been reading a lot of contracts and I mean, I've just been doing my thing, reading and recording and making beats and, mm-hmm. you know, building my library and cleaning up my room and, you know, just organizing my life and having time to do that, meditating and hanging out with my family on Zoom. And I mean, I don't know why the pandemic was the catalyst for us to do that, hang out with our families when they don't live here anyway. So we've started to do Sunday dinners with them and that's been really fun. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, it's been really fun. We just laugh and play games and eat and make food together and it's been it's actually brought me and my uh friends who don't live here and family a little bit closer together it's it's cool that we have the technology that we have um in this particular time period because you know can you imagine like waiting for like the mail like just a just a you know <laughs> if it was all just like letters or carrier pigeons or something like it'd be really <laughs> really difficult like i couldn't at this point i feel like the the real the real tiny like pin that's holding probably most of our sanity together on some level is is the internet or just having a connection to stuff absolutely absolutely i i also released a single with um with the beyonce girls uh we call ourselves the ogs oh i bought it i bought it thank you Um, it's called um it's called higher and we're talking like i mean it's 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 kind of politically driven um, and Plugin Alliance partnered with us on the song, and they're actually this week making the stems available for people to mix and remix. Wherever, whatever DAW you use, they're giving you all the stems, drums, vocals, bass, guitar, everything. So I'm looking forward to seeing what people are going to do with the song, especially because uh, when they're releasing it. So it's kind of cool. That's really cool. Yeah, and Bandcamp's doing um, their, their every first Friday of the month uh, they're doing that thing where they uh, give the artists like a hundred percent of their cut minus whatever fees. Oh, that's super dope. Yeah. Cause that's where I got, that's where I got the OGs track from. I was on, yeah. was on Bandcamp, and I got my stuff's on there. That's a great platform in general. Um, it is. If you, if you really use it correctly, you can build like, like Steve Lawson uses Bandcamp in a way that, that I really should, uh, it's, it's a good blueprint for an independent artist because he's pretty much built a community on Bandcamp of people who are just continually supporting uh, him and his music every month. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's super dope. I, uh, I should use it more because I know those little checks TuneCore sends me from iTunes and YouTube don't really amount to anything. It's like 0.000 cent yeah. per stream. It's, it's different though. It's so, it's gotten so different. Like when I, so I have two records out and the first one came out in, um, in, in the fall of 2004. And so that was the real sweet spot for like the paid download thing. Mm. And for a long time, I would say for at least 10 years, um, 
maybe nine years, like before streaming really kind of took hold. Like I wasn't living off that money, but it was definitely pretty decent um, and, and fair. Like the split was fair. Yeah. And then um, the second one did pretty well also. And I didn't put those now they're on the streaming things. Cause they're, it, I put them up there like way past way past, like when they were fresh and you know, whatever. And I guess it, it, it's cool to have your stuff where people can get to it. But um, that's the one thing I've been talking to a lot of musicians about. I wanted to see what you thought about all that because, because I know Steve's doing band camp, Julie slick, she does a band camp thing and that's been pretty good for her. She was telling me about that. I know a lot of folks are on Patreon and they're making, you know, they're kind of making their storefronts for their content. Um, you know, I guess, cause we're sort of looking at this, some kind of a period of time where touring isn't really going to be a thing for a while. Like, what do you, I mean, do you think the future is kind of people putting their stuff in a place like that? Like where, you know, it's just direct to the fans type thing, which is not new, but it seems like everyone's doing it now. Yeah. I think you kind of have to do a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. You're going to have the people, you're going to have those those people that are that that love you support you want it, want everything that you do they'll come to your storefront they'll buy whatever you put out especially if you are consistent and putting out content consistently no matter what that content is um so yeah i think that's 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 kind of what we have to do mm-hmm. um I also think that, you know, the streaming stuff is sort of like you use it for promotional purposes. You you put your music on Spotify because that's where people are. And I don't know, maybe if somebody discover you there, if you're on a playlist or something like that, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out for myself, too. Um, I'm on Patreon. I'm on Bandcamp. I'm... I mean, I'm on everything pretty much, but I'm not re- I haven't put out a record in a while. It's the last record I put out was 2016. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hard for me to gauge where I'm being the most effective because I'm not putting out new content right now musically. Um, I've been focusing. It's, it's so weird because as soon as every time I say, OK, you know what? I'm just going to focus on my, al- my, my album. I'm just going to put a record out i get a gig and i'm like i gotta go do this gig you know what i mean (laughs) yeah yeah gotta go do it it's 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 what i gotta go do so it's like it always happens for me that way so it's just a matter of really trying to be more diligent in focusing on my solo stuff um i noticed though that i started doing this hump day ig live thing where I'm talking to other artists, especially focusing on female artists and having different conversations about the industry and just about life, sort of what you're doing with your podcast. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that that has, has increased my visibility and traffic in a way that I was not um, anticipating. So that's been really good. I think the more you can just be in front of people and start to tell them where to go follow you. Um, when, I'm, when, I'm on the, when I'm on the Wednesday, Humpback Wednesday IG, and I'm like, go to my Patreon and support me uh, on Patreon if you like what it is I'm doing. I always get people who go and start supporting me on Patreon. So that's actually really kind of cool because... 
people on Patreon are supporting you because they want to. I don't think you necessarily have to give them content all the time. They just want to support you and what it is that you're doing. And I think it's important to just to find those people who are who are like that. And and if you can do something special for them because they're supporting you when you come into into town, bring them to your show, let them go to sound check, have dinner, kick it with the band. You know what I mean? Mm. That goes so far beyond just purchasing your album and following you on social media. Yeah, I I definitely like how how accessible it's made it for for everybody, you know, just in terms of like you can meet, you can see who likes your stuff, um you can interact with them. I definitely feel like, you know, that whole um just the way that like anybody can kind of build something um, from, from the resources we all have. I, I dig it, you know, like I, I really like, I really like the, the way in which, you know, people can, can put their music out there and, and make a place for themselves and all of it where, where previously it might've been really difficult. Um, I mean, that's, that is sort of how my career started, you know, like I, you know, the paradigm of getting a gig and then doing records after that, like I did it backwards. Like I made a record that helped me somehow find cool gigs, you know, with, with people I always wanted to do work with. Um, super dope. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people, you know, yeah. I mean, I was an artist before I was a bass player. Um, I had been an artist for a long time, so I totally feel you on that. I didn't know what a bass player really did or was until I got the Beyonce gig. I it, it really occurred to me then that, oh, this is what bass players do. Oh, wow. Okay. I can be a bass player, too. I mean, I didn't even call myself a bass player until after I was really on that gig. Um, before that, I was an MC. And I played the bass. <laughs> right. I remember hearing about you because um, I couldn't, I think I was, I think I had a gig on this night, but I remember someone saw you with Vic um, and it would have been the earlier period of time when you were doing that. So um, in the early thousands. Yeah. yeah the, the early aughts. Yeah, definitely. And, um, and they said, yeah, like this, you know, they're like this, this this rapper played and and played bass and and did this thing and it was amazing. I was like, wow, you know. And then you know, I, okay. I mean, I kind of put two and two together. But how did so? How did how did the bass creep in there? Because I, I forgive me, I don't I don't actually know this story. So I'm asking just. I was a uh, when I was at UC Berkeley, I was studying to be a journalist, and okay. I had been an MC in high school, and I mean, I've been an MC since I was like. 12 or 13 years old or something. So when I got mm -hmm. to Berkeley, I was, I ended up uh, meeting all these musicians and hanging out with them and freestyling, having these little freestyle sessions with an upright bass player and a drummer and meeting other MCs. And as I was hanging out with them, we were starting to, you know, like, you know how we do we, as musicians, we're like, oh, now we should make a record. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like, cause we were having so much fun uh, having these freestyle parties and sessions. Um, we went in the studio to make a record and my boy was the bass player. And I just remember feeling like I didn't have any input about what was happening musically. And it was because I wasn't a musician. I was the rapper. You know what I mean? And so, and I had been thinking about it. I was like, you know, maybe I should get a guitar. I want to play the guitar. And my boy was like, you should get a bass, yo. He was like, you <laughs> more like a bass player. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, man. Like your whole vibe. You just laid back. You so cool. It's, you like, you got, you, you like, you walk like a bass player. Like you, you're just, you that type. And I was like, okay. So, I mean, because I, you know, I, I was just like, okay, cool. Sounds fun. I never thought about playing the bass before. It sounds, I'll, I'll get one and try it. So, I went home for the summer and I had been in a car accident in high school and I had just gotten a settlement from that car accident. So, oh. I made a bass guitar and an amp and shipped it out, shipped the amp out to Berkeley, took the guitar on the plane the bass on the plane and got back to school with a bass. And he like showed me these exercises for strengthening my fingers. And I had grown up playing the clarinet and I knew how to read treble clef music, but I didn't know how to read bass clef. And I think I took the same approach of learning how to play because I, the only, the only instrument I ever learned how to play was was um, the clarinet. So everything that I had done to learn how to play the clarinet, I just applied it to the bass. I went and got a little book, Mel Bay book, <laughs> mm-hmm. started teaching myself bass clef, playing the little scales in the book, and also playing all the music from Outkast and Goody Mob and everything that was out, the Fugees, um, you know, all that music was so bass driven and so I would just play along to those records and um eventually I was like hmm my hip-hop group in Atlanta had uh had broken up because I went to college and my boys were out in the street it was like me and two guys and they were in the street just getting in trouble after I left after I left to go to school Mm. I I really felt responsible for them and I was like, you know, we never really did see what could happen with our rap group. So, and and the bass bug had hit me. So I was like, maybe I should just go back home and like get the group back together and put a record out. And so that's what I did. And then like, I just kept practicing bass on the side and I went to Georgia State and their jazz program for a second, but I didn't know anything about mm. jazz or anything. He just let me in because I could play. And he taught me how to read charts and he needed a bass player for his ensemble. So I joined and then I'd left that school and started playing and rapping and going into the clubs and playing all over Atlanta. Just I was just making it up as I went along, but I loved it so much. I was just in the mix all the time, yo, like everywhere. <laughs> I would go to three or four clubs a night carrying that bass. You know what I mean? Just like, can you let me on stage? Let me on stage. I want to play. I want to play. <laughs> wow. And I went to Victor's Bass Camp, and he asked me to go on tour with him. That's so cool. When you were going to those clubs, were you playing, like, well-known bass lines, like, on hip-hop songs and stuff? Like, were you doing, like, white lines and stuff? Or were you just – did you have, like, stuff that you you knew you could – 
kind of hold down while you would rhyme over it? Well, during that time, Atlanta was there. There were a couple of things happening in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. There was this huge poetry scene, and it was like poetry mixed with hip hop. So it was my very first gig was at a comedy club where before the comics came out, there was like these poets. Okay. And I was in the band with a group of brothers, ironically, just like kind of with Victor. And the bass player wanted to solo. He just wanted to play solo lines. So he would show me bass lines on stage until I got them and I would play those grooves so he could solo on top of them. And then the poets would spit poems on top of those things. So he really, his name was Taurus Mateen. I don't know if you know Taurus. I know who he is. You know who he is. Taurus really was my first bass teacher. And Taurus's philosophy was all about improvisation. Taurus actually told me when I was first starting, don't learn anybody's songs. <laughs> <laughs> he told me that. Don't learn. He's like, don't learn nobody else's shit. Do your own thing. <laughs> and I was so confused because I was like, man, I really like that Marcus Miller dude. I want to play like him. And he was like, nope, mm-mm, mm-mm, don't play like him. Don't play like this. The other dude you like, Victor Wooten, uh-uh. don't play like none of them. Play like you. So I, I was so confused, but that's how, that's what I would do. I would go to the clubs and there was this huge poetry scene. And so it was all improvisation after, after playing those gigs with Taurus for a while, Taurus disappeared. And I became that bass player who could listen to what a poet was saying and just come up with the bass line. And then everybody in the band would fall into that. And so that at hip hop clubs for battles, the MCs, would get up on stage and I would just start a bass line and the band, we would just all jump in and the MCs would battle over that bass, you know, over that groove or the drummer would start something up and then I would start something up. Like, you know, like it was all improvisation at that time. And then I was making up my own songs because Taurus told me to make up my own stuff. So that's what I was doing. It wasn't, it was later in my bass playing career that I actually was like, I should probably start learning people's bass lines. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think there's, you know, there's value in both. It's a different paradigm when you're coming at this as an artist. Cause I think some people really like the idea of, I'm going to, you know, they want to like play in the tradition of something or they really like the history of recorded music. So their thing is they want to play lots of sessions and, but I've always kind of been into both worlds, you know, like I think being creative and just making up your own thing or like building something from within is probably like a, it's a super valuable thing. But then to sort of turn that into a way to play with other musicians, I think that's where it can get really dicey because it's really easy to, um, I'm sure what part of what Taurus was getting at is like, if you end up kind of taking too much from, the things that are inspiring you, if you're going to learn their music, then, you know, like, I mean, how many, think about how many Marcus Miller clones there are like Victor Wooten clones and, oh. you know, and it's sad. Cause like, I'm sure those people probably have really interesting things to do musically that have nothing to do with that. And they probably find that eventually, but I don't know. I think, I think there's a lot of value in sort of doing like, to me, that is sort of like the hip hop, punk rock thing is like just do you do your thing and totally. um I, I really applaud that that's really what i like about rock and roll in in all its subgenres and hip-hop and other styles of music just 
you know, cause like I, I mean, I've played a decent amount of fusion and jazz and I, I love that stuff and I love funk music and, but I feel like there's definitely like strange rules that apply where it's like with rock and hip hop, it doesn't really matter. Like people can come out, like you don't really have to sound like people in hip hop don't really have to make records that make it sound like they've listened to like, um, the earlier stuff. You know, which I know purists might have a problem with, but it's like there's some kids like 20 years old in a basement somewhere and they're making beats and they're hearing stuff. They might not be aware of like, you know, Grandmaster Flash or like the Sugar Hill Gang or Curtis Blow or, or any of that stuff. Like they maybe they're coming in right at like two years before they start getting into it and. I feel like if, if you're in any other style of music, you're punished for not like, this doesn't sound like the tradition. And I feel like those are two styles of music where it's encouraged to like, not worry so much about that, you know, um, which I dig. I don't really those like the rules. Music didn't worry about it. They weren't coming out. They were creating their own tradition. So yeah, I get that. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing is though, is that for, there were a couple of years where I was mad at Taurus for that. Oh yeah. Because I felt like, I was so vulnerable when I first started playing bass. Mm -hmm. I was so new and so green that I, I was like, I wish he hadn't have told me that. And I wish I hadn't believed him so much because I felt at a disadvantage for a while. Um, because I hadn't learned a bunch of songs that everybody else knew. So I would get to some places and be like, okay, I don't know that. Nope, I don't know that either. Nope, not never learned that one either, you know, and mm -hmm. and it and it in it didn't validate me as a musician not knowing those things. You know, there is a tradition like you said of, you know, you go to a jam session, every somebody calls out a, a song and so everybody knows it. It's like, okay, cool, we're all going to play this song. Yeah. But I would be like, uh, nope, let's just make something up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and I felt and I was angry at him for a while for that. But I mean, I just needed to go and do some homework. And so I had to go and do that. You know, did you find that um, your rhythmic vocabulary from from being an MC did that inform your bass playing at all? Because I know I had a friend in college and um, he's a very successful producer now. But um, he he played piano and he was super into um, we were listening to like the far side and he liked Snoop's first record a lot. And he would obsess over his phrasing, you know, like and this was kind of, you know, people weren't really talking about placement in terms of where things are laying against like where the where the pulse is like behind the beat on top of the beat like there were I didn't hear a lot of people talking about that when I was younger like I mean I think it became more more of a thing when you really got into like the the minutia of stuff like when people like like Slum Village start putting out records and Jay Dilla kind of became a thing people were studying but, but my friend was like you should really listen to Snoop the way he phrases his shit against this beat and then he would play something and phrase in that style. And it was, I don't know. I feel like that, that whole thing really, there's, there's a weird relationship that I think hip hop has with non-obvious forms of music, like not just jazz, but just in terms of rhythm and, and how it, 
permeates everything. Yeah, the rhythm of the MC is really the essence of that MC's style. How they ride the beat is so, that's the part that's so unique. I mean, and of course, there's the wordplay and all those different things, but it's mm-hmm. really about how you ride the beat. And I think for me, I've never consciously thought about my bass playing. I never thought, okay, as an MC, I, I ride the beat like this, so this is how I'm going to play the bass. I don't think that I don't think that I've I, still to this day I don't think about it like that. I think it's just nat. It's it's all natural. You know what I mean? I just let it be what it is and not analyze it or really try to break it down and think about it too much. Right on. Um, yeah. Even still to this day, yeah, I don't do it. Even with the the rebel baseline, that when I th- now that when I think about it and I think about the rhythm of it, it's very much how I rap. And yeah. that's why I came up with that, you know, after hearing Vic, Victor do the triplet and I couldn't do it the way he did it. So I had to come up with my own way of making that triplet um, and that it was natural for me. And so rapping on top of that became natural. And when I go back and think about it, that whole baseline is definitely uh, it's an ode to my style of rap for sure. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, because that's the one that's got um, it's like groups of three, but it's like sixteenths. Like it's sort of. Yeah, yeah. I might cut that in just so folks know what it is. Some people are born to lead it, others are born to follow Some people are born to spit it, others are born to swallow Some are born to make the rules, others are born to break it Some people are born to dish it, others are born to take it I was born to make this better whenever, however, never will I Let them take me, let them make me, cause I know it's a lie I'm a rebel when I'm writing, say we Mars is aside If you look into my eyes, what you see The strongest weapon, me and the booze, spitting the truth Trouble youth is falling in need of a parachute All you want is loot, but look through to execute You know, I would say that if anything, that is one of the most that is the signature event. That one and the D I V I. Yes. You know what I mean? Everybody knows that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, <laughs> that shit's two, awesome. That's, that's those just... are two records I've I have not recorded. I recorded Rebel once, but it was it was a different it was the first version of Rebel before I came up with that style. Mm-hmm. And every time I got with like a like every producer always wanted to record that record. Ooh, let's record that record. Let's record that record. But every time they recorded it, they would fuck it up. And I'd be like, nope, don't like it. You took something away from it, from the rawness of it. Like, it's just, yeah. it's one of well, those things. And every time I tried to do the D-I-V-I with the producer, they, it, they would always, it would always come out wrong. And I'd just be like, yo, you, you're taking the feel away. And that's kind of why I got into production for myself too was because every time I would go in with a producer and I would have this raw idea and it would just be, it just had this group, this feeling and the producer would introduce another feeling that sort of negated the feeling that I had brought to it and it would change the whole record. And I just didn't understand why that was constantly happening with me. Hmm. And when I would object I would be met with a lot of resistance. So I went and got a computer and bought Pro Tools and started recording myself years and years ago. 
Um, and I mean, you know, that's a that's a that's a lifelong journey, that production thing. But I'm still recording myself. So this this last album, I it was a lot of me. And and when I listen back to those records, I'm like, yeah, that's what those records are supposed to sound like. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think production. Um, well, OK, like if if like the instrument you play, like if like, it's like the bass is like the globe. I feel like production is like the universe. And when you learn how to like work with all the stuff that's there, it's, I, I definitely think once I started diving into production from a, for personally, I mean, I, I guess I talk to a lot of musicians that also say this, but that changed my bass playing completely mm-hmm. because, because especially when you're writing other parts, cause, cause my last record, even though I had people on it, like I played probably 65% of the instruments on there. Like I programmed all the stuff and you know, like I can't play guitar like Vernon Reed, but you know, like I'll have him play on it. And, um, but when I got more concerned about arrangement and just the sounds, like the bass was almost like the last thing I thought of. And, uh, it made me have a different, it's not that I didn't see it, when I would play other people's music, but just even working on my own, like I would, I would sacrifice my own, like, yeah, I don't want to play here or I want to play this really simple thing here so I can have this other sound here that I think would work better. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it just gives you like a more holistic view of music, but I was going to ask you, like, do you think if you recorded those two things, would you do it just bass and voice? Cause I almost feel like that would be, awesome because it's very um there's something very like like the very stripped down approach would be cool yeah um and and it i don't know like that i feel like it works well like that like was was the issue like too much stuff that would be added to it or was it the like when the feel got wrecked was there not like enough bounce to it or was it like not swinging the way you like to do it all of that, all yeah. of that, but mostly the sound of it, the t- like the, the sound, the groove. I've been wanting to do, and I don't know why I haven't done this. I've been talking about it and wanting to do it for a long time. The Beats, Bass, and Rhymes album, where it's just bass, drums, and, and me spitting rhymes. Um, and every time I start on it, I get distracted and start doing something else because I'm a little bit ADD and I... Yeah, I, I am. It's horrible. I, oh, it's really bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, cause, yeah, because I could be sitting here doing one thing, and my wife would be like, "Didn't you say you you were gonna be doing homework now? You are in here with your bass, making a beat. You got all the microphones <laughs> out, you like grabbing <laughs> guitars, and like, what are you doing?" <laughs> but yeah, but um. But yeah, I do feel like those two records, I don't, maybe not just bass and vocals, but definitely just rhythms. And I, I there's actually a drummer I can think of um, who drives me crazy. Who's that? Out, Lamar Moore. Outside of us playing together, he drives me absolutely insane. But when we play together, it, oh. <laughs> it is just magic. It really is. I was listening to some old tour um, <laughs> tour of audio 
And I mean, because he listens to what I'm saying and what I'm playing. And he plays my lyrics on the drums. Oh, that's cool. So when we're playing Rebel, he's, he plays those, he plays some of the the things that, that, that I wouldn't even, even think he should catch. He catches a little bit of those lyrics when he's playing it with me. And he's subtle, but he's... He's dynamic, you know, he's just a really dynamic drummer, but he just drives me crazy. Like we are always arguing and fighting and we can hardly get along probably because we're both Aquarians and both ADD and just crazy anyway. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. when we play together, it is uh, Paco Siri. You know Paco? Paco Siri? I don't know him personally, but I'm a fan of his work. Oh, God, he's so good. He took us to, uh, he brought us out to uh, to Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast. He brought the band out. And, uh, <laughs> and he would say to us, like, we would go out to eat after the gigs. And he would be like, you two have to stay together no matter what. And I'm like, yeah, Paco, but he drives me crazy. He get on my nerves and, and I just can't deal with him. And he was like, that's exactly why you guys have to always play music together. He's like, because I've seen videos of you playing with other people and I've seen videos of him playing with other people. And there's absolutely nothing like when the two of you are playing together, you know? So that's cool. Guy who I need to do the beats, bass and rhymes album with shout out to Lamar. Yeah, yeah, you guys should just do it all in one day. Like you should. Um, here I'm. I'm like. I'm like pitching you ideas. You should like uh, have a video component, and like maybe take the audio from that, so it's like live. And then that way you just nail the shit and done. And it's one day. You're not gonna fight about anything, you know. <laughs> oh, we'll fight about something. Believe that. <laughs> you just be like, look, check the mixes in Dropbox. It'll just be like angry emails, you know. Totally. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, so maybe those two songs would make it to that to that record. Yeah. What have you been listening to uh or watching or reading in this whole time period? Like is have you been besides like I mean it sounds like you've been really busy and working on stuff which is awesome. Yeah, it's so crazy. Um I've been listening to I've been listening to a lot of things. I lately I've been listening to a lot of Bob Marley because mm -hmm. Bob calms my nerves mm -hmm. and with everything that's happening in the world I needed to have my nerves calmed and so I always go back to Bob um I was listening to some Bobby Hutchinson not too mm -hmm. long ago just I just put a whole bunch of uh Bobby H uh, Hutchinson and Spotify and just let it play all day um I, I and after we did that um that bass hang so I was lucky enough to get into this bass hang with Victor and uh and Steve Bailey and Marcus and um Will Lee and cool, Anthony cool. Jackson was there and um, Ron wow. Carter, I went back and listened to Ron Carter's uh, Portrayal. Is that how you say it? That album? Got Which, it. Oh, it's so good. Um, and then I love Anderson Pack's last record. So as much as I loved the the vocal album, I've gone back and been really vibing off of the instrumental. But I think that's because my production ear is heightened and, you know, like, I'm listening to the production. Um, there's this really dope artist out of France, uh, Leonie per Pernet, I think, P-E-R-N-E-T. Mm -hmm. She's really interesting. She's like super loner type um, piano player, keyboard player. I've been really digging her stuff. She 
And another guy whose name is escaping me right now did the soundtrack for this movie my wife and I watched while we were in quarantine. One of the first movies we watched was Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Mm. And the music was so good, I went back and checked out who composed most of it and discovered her. Um, the music from Little Fires Everywhere was really good, too. So I went back and was checking out, checking out those guys. So I watched that series, Little Fires Everywhere. I just watched Mrs. America, which is really interesting. And um, I've been watching Insecure. Um, oh, that's a great show. That's a great show. And I love Issa Rae and I want my music to play on her show. Oh yeah, let's, that should happen. Did oh you see why? Yeah. I, there, especially this new record. So I'm working on this new record called The Ballad of Debbie Walker and it's basically the, the origin stories of Divinity Rocks. My birth name is Debbie Walker. Okay. Um, and so it's like the origin and, and Divinity Rocks is like this superhero, you know, bass player extraordinaire, rah, rah, big personality, wild, crazy woman. And so I want to talk about how she became who she be, you know, who Debbie Walker became. She became wow. rocks. And um, so I started working on this album at Zoo Labs and I've gone back in since and listened to some of this music. And I am loving this music right now. It's 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 really my story. Um, <laughs> this one song that I keep hearing that definitely should be on insecure um but anyway i i digress no that's cool so is Div- divinity rocks is that your alter ego would you say like did you have to create i feel like we all sort of do that in our own way right like there's there's like the the person we put forward that probably gives the real person strength to do stuff i mean how, how does that work and how do you reconcile that you know, the name Divinity was given to me when I was really young. Okay. And honestly, for years, I, I struggled with that name. It was my first rap name, MC Divinity. When I, if, you, if you think about it, when I came, when I, when I came out with Victor Wooten, I was MC Divinity. And then I struggled with Divinity because I felt like I never, I could never live up to that name. Um, and so I kept trying to drop it and become somebody else or just have a different name. So I dealt with MC Divinity. I dealt with Divi Baby for a while. And um, when I decided that Divinity Rocks was definitely who I am. It was during the Beyonce days. That's really interesting, the Beyonce days. And this is funny that I'm going to say this to you because I don't talk about this very much. During the Beyonce days, there was a lot of transformation for me. I had been, right before I got the Beyonce gig, I had been in L.A., trying to get a record deal with Ron Fair. I had worked with Will I Am. Um, I was calling myself the Duchess of Decatur. I had been in the studio. I can't remember this dude's name who had produced Michael Jackson's album. And um, shit, the bass player from Mother's Finest had come in. Yeah, had, we, were working on, we were working on this album. Will I Am jumped in. I was in the studio with DJ Lethal. Like I was really working on getting this record deal and everything sort of fell apart for me. And I was crushed and... 
tired and annoyed with the industry and angry and just frustrated and sad and really about to give up on it all. And then I got this Beyonce gig and the Beyonce gig did a, num a number of things for me. It, it, it helped to validate me as a musician and artist. It helped me to realize that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing with my life. That this idea of quitting was absolutely not acceptable that I was on the right path. And it also helped me, and I think it's just because of the nature of Beyonce and who she is. She is the ultimate woman. You know, when you think about what a woman is, Beyonce, for a lot of people come to mind. Oh yeah, yeah. And her femininity. And I think being in that situation with all those women and um and and her as the leader it really helped me get in touch with my feminine side in a way that i was not expecting it to and somehow with all of that happening divinity rocks emerged the the shy sort of timid uh unsure um sort of afraid to be myself in all of the parts of me that exist inside this little bitty body. There are so many different faces and parts of me that exist. I was able to, in that space, they all were able to emerge and exist and live at the same time. And I was comfortable with that. And that's kind of where, how Divinity Rocks emerged. Wow, that's, that's beautiful. Um... I, so that was like, what, like 2006 um, when, when we got the gig. Yeah. 2006. Yeah. Cause um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I played with Nikki right before she was going to go audition. Like I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I remember seeing her uh, in Boston. There used to be a, um, I was still living in Boston. Oh wait, no, I wasn't. I was in New York at that point, but I was doing some stuff in Boston. She was up there. I don't know if she still lived there. She hadn't moved to New York yet or maybe she was just getting ready to, but I ran into her at um, the Virgin mega store and she was buying the live Beyonce DVD. And I remember saying to her, I was like, I, I bet you'll, you'll nail this shit and you probably don't need to watch that. But she's like, nah, I want to do my homework. I'm like, cool. And then I was like, Hey, I'm playing, I'm playing down the thing. Come sit in. And uh, she did. And then, you know, I remember when she went on, um, I can't remember if it was, get the error right it might have been myspace because <clears throat> yeah. it was 2006 we weren't on we weren't in a facebook world at that point mm -hmm. and she she just wrote i got it that, <laughs> <laughs> um so it was it was awesome it was awesome to see that band i know Rie a little bit also oh Rie is so such a brilliant such a brilliant mind Rie. yeah um i think didn't she move like they because they had a studio her and Roseanne in in brooklyn I believe they're living, I don't know, don't get me wrong. They're living okay. somewhere though. Um, yeah, you know, and I, I mean, so in the, amongst all those great, incredible musicians is where I, I mean, I really had to emerge and become uh, a, a musician, a bass player, you yeah. know, I, like I could play. And I think that that was the thing, something about the bass and me, I mean, 
I really do believe I was I was supposed to play the bass. I, I was it was I was some way somehow destined to play the bass. I don't know how or why, but because I was good, even though I didn't know a lot. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I didn't know a lot, and so <coughs> I had to go back and learn so much, and I had to work really 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 hard during that time to 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 be up to par with with everybody in the band like seriously um so yeah i mean that was just a really huge growth 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 period for me and afterwards too because um because when the gig when i left the beyonce band it was really a hard decision for me. Um, And I believe I was depressed about it for a couple of years. Um, It was really, it was a really interesting time. So I've just been growing and emerging. And so this ballad of Debbie Walker, I feel like will play itself out as me being a storyteller which is what I always felt like I have been, which was the, 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 the reason why I wanted to be a journalist was so that I could, could tell the stories of what was happening in the world around me. Um, and then I was a poet too. I was studying with June Jordan and I made this sort of real decision to stop writing poetry and to focus primarily on writing raps. And now the poet in me is sort of beginning to emerge again and want to write. So I feel like this show is me spitting poems and bass lines and beats and rhymes and telling stories and playing these songs and this music. And so it's, it's a little bit, it's kind of big and it's taking me some time to put it all together. But I am slowly putting it together. <clears throat> that sounds awesome. That's definitely a, a story I want to follow, you know, <clears throat> just that whole thing. Bit by bit. <laughs> it sounds very full circle, too, in a way, you know, like you kind of kind of went on that path. What was hard about leaving the Beyonce gig? Like, was it I mean, if, if, if you're comfortable talking about this, like, was it? Did you feel like it was sort of time to go or was it just bands flip every now and then and that's just how it was? I felt like it I felt like it was time to go. I I I'm I'm an artist. You know? Yeah. I had always been an artist. Uh and I wasn't being an artist anymore. I was just being a bass player. So there was a part of myself I was no longer expressing. And, and I was getting really depressed about that. Um, and as much as I'm a multitasker, I couldn't do both. At the, I, I couldn't do it both at the same time. I don't know what it was about it that I couldn't do both at the same time, but I couldn't. And so... I had to make a decision about whether or not I was going to continue doing that or if I was going to be be the artist that I had always, you know, saw myself as being. Um the artist that I was when I, before I before I got the gig. So it was really that was hard. I mean, it's the biggest yeah. gig in the world. Right, you were in the machine at that point. 
I mean, I was in the machine, you know, <laughs> and and it's a great machine. I mean, it's she's you know, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean Beyonce. Like, there's if you can get near someone that only needs to have their first name spoken, and really in her case, like the first two Syllable. syllables. Yeah, <laughs> you say Beyonce. Yeah, I love her. You know, like that's that's. I mean, that there's not that many people that have that kind of a, a stake on this planet. And, yeah. the, you know, it's, it's very. Uh, and when we say that, and when I say that, it's not her, it's the brand, the yeah. music, the musician, the artist, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, you know, I, I was really just, um, yeah, I was really just in this space where I was like, what am I going to do? Um, and, and she was, and it was during the time where she was taking some time off and I was like, Oh my God, she's taking time off. What am I going to do? Who am I? What am I doing? Where, what, you know, like, does my life revolve around, around this job or this, you know, what am, what am I doing? What about the songs? What about the music? You know? And then I was also, you know, I, there were, there were people who were, really big supporters uh, of the work that I was doing. And, you know, and they were asking me those hard questions. What are you going to do? What are you, you know? And so I had a good friend of mine who was running a club in LA. She was running the Whiskey A Go-Go. And she was like, you can play here whenever you want. So, I mean, the music I was making was like rocked out hip hop. I was wild and now I moved out to LA and and started playing at the whiskey and building, you know, building the brand and building the audience and and doing the things. And then my father passed away and, and all of that sort of the band that I was working with out there broke up soon after that because I I had to I had to step away from for a moment from that after my father passed away. Uh, understandable. I'm sorry to hear that. They didn't understand that at the time. I don't see how they couldn't understand that, but I don't know, whatever. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of transition that happened after that, you know, after leaving the Beyonce gig too. So it was like, there were moments when I was like, you know what? Why didn't you just stay doing that? Cause you knew that, what that was. You should have just stayed, you know, <laughs> But such is life, you know, life, you never know what life is going to bring you and you just have to roll with the punches and you have to know that whatever is coming your way is for you. And it's exactly what you need to be doing, exactly where you're supposed to be in order for you to grow, to be the person that you are supposed to eventually be in this world. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of where I am now re-emerging from all of those things and continuing to grow. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that about, um, I didn't know that about like that, that period where, cause I, did you and Nikki leave that gig at the same time or was it? Sort no, of, Nikki left before I did. Okay. And, okay. So I played with Cora, uh, on the I am tour, I think. Right. Okay. Uh, Cora's a beast. I love playing with Cora. She's awesome. Yeah, um, yeah. I love playing with Nikki, of course. I mean, yes. come on, Nikki. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was probably, I probably left right after Nikki. Yeah, and then she went and did Dumpster Funk, and I was in LA doing doing my thing with my band. 
Um, and then my wife moved out to LA and then I started playing with this group. I went to South Korea and MD'd for this band to anyone and continued to tour and play with my band and, um, and try to figure out what was going to happen next. And then, uh, then I moved out here to New York because my wife is, is from this area. So, uh, she hated LA. And so <laughs> yeah, I've been here three years. I, I, I mostly love it. I did. I did too. LA was, I liked LA. It was awesome for me. Yeah. All my friends were like, are you, you know, cause then I went through this whole thing where I was retiring. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is a hard, I mean, I definitely can, can empathize and relate because I think sometimes the the whole idea that registers when you think, should I quit? I think sometimes people need to see where the exit is, even if they don't really want to use the exit. Like, let's just mark that it's here. And if I wanted to walk through that door, I could probably do it. Um, but it doesn't mean, I don't know, like people, I always feel like there's this weird reaction when people, uh, say stuff like that. But I, I definitely think, you know, I'm not going to say that we have the hardest job in the world because there's obviously we've, as we've seen, there's very, very difficult professions like, you know, people in the medical field and like, you know, fighting, fighting pandemics and, and stuff like that. Like that, that's to me seems infinitely harder than playing music, uh, you know, may, but maybe it's not, who knows? But, but I would, I would, venture to say it probably is but I, but I think um balancing like life stuff and the lifestyle of being a musician and not in the glorified sense but just you know just having to exist and be in a situation or a field that is constantly making you adapt you know um <laughs> even just to keep your lights on really I mean there's not I can't think of another profession I mean they, they definitely exist and I think all professions have this component to it, but, but music is very much evolve or die. If you're trying to like feed yourself from it, you know, it's like constantly can't get too comfortable. No, you can't. And you have to be innovative and creative. And Oh, I mean, a lot of, a lot of what we do and how we're received and what we do is based off of somebody else's opinion about you. Right. So like it's all subjective. So you know, it, it that that can be that can wear on you after a while. It's easy to get lost in that, and I think it's really hard to, you know, sometimes the the thing that sucks about that is when, because I've definitely been in that place where, the one opinion I really needed access to was my own, you know. Yes. yes. And then it gets drowned out by the other stuff like the what should I do moments because I think it's a it's it's tricky because a lot of advancement comes from validation you know but validation is also like that's like the heroin of any industry because uh, and I've never done heroin so I'm just guessing it's like that but you know you get you get addicted to it it makes you react to things and it can sway your judgment and you know but it's like the real I think the the most honest place is usually the right place to operate from. And so, you know, it's like, I've definitely said I'm going to quit or I'm done with this shit or, you know, and then, you know, like I'll stomp around and then a couple hours later, it's like, nah, I didn't really mean that. <laughs> no, I really meant it. Yo, I mean, <laughs> my friends were calling me uh, like, 
Come on now, you done lost your mind. Cat Dyson comes to mind. Cat, <laughs> cat, cat, what? Cat talked me off the bridge. It was really funny. Um, because, and you know, and honestly, that it that was the catalyst for me enrolling at at, at Berkeley. Mm. Was um, number one, I certainly have always wanted to get my degree. You know that just just for my family's sake, just for the legacy. Uh, that's that was always important to me. My mom was always so adamant about education and serious about education, and so um, you know. And I was teaching a lot too, so I was thinking mm, maybe I'll just become a teacher. I'll just I'll just do that. I can give this wisdom off. I've lived a life that I can share and inspire some young minds to get out there and do the work. Um, but I mean, I, you know, I love playing the bass guitar. And even if I wasn't playing professionally, I would still play the bass guitar. Even if it was just for me sitting in this room, um, I would pick up the bass and turn on my little DAW and record myself doing it or turn on this little loop station and loop myself playing bass lines and soloing over them. And, you know, it just brings me a, a certain joy that, that I, and I don't, I can't explain where that joy, what that feels like and what it means to me and how grounded it keeps me. Um, but sometimes it can be a stressful thing. And that's when, you know, you like you said, you, 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 you like, yo, fuck this shit. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done, son. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's very it's very freeing to do that. I've I've had moments where I've been close, you know. I mean, I definitely there was a point where I was working a day gig part time in in the city when I was still living in New York and I needed to do that because I think it actually protected I don't know. I just wanted to take a step back, you know, and I wanted to say, I didn't want to have to play if I didn't want to. Yeah. Um, there's that too. There's the, there's the being the musician who has to go do things that you don't want to do. And you're like, yo, what am I doing? What yeah. Is no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be around these people. I don't want to be around this environment. This is toxic. You know, there's that, there's the toxicity of it that, kind of you want to get away from in certain you know instances um, it, yeah there's a lot of little needle eyes to thread with it you know yeah. and and it's you know i guess as a more evolved human i'd like to think i've become over the years from whatever like experience and doing some work on myself uh i mean there's always the gratitude angle you can always just be glad that you're working but i think I think, you know, if, if you're in my case, like I was, I, if the what next moments are always the ones where I'm, I'm one of those people that likes to take a pause. Like if I feel like I'm out in the water and I don't want to surf, so to speak, then it's like, I feel like that's where I could p potentially crash or hurt myself. Um, mm. Which is weird. Cause you know, it's really, there's really not it playing music is not always the most, it, it, you know, it, it's deep on, on the level of just you're playing with other human beings and you're making something happen, but not every minute of your musical life is going to determine, you know, your legacy or whatever you're trying to build. It's just a means to an end. But sometimes, you know, 
when we're writing our own story, it doesn't feel like that. And it's like, I don't want to do this. I'm going to do something else for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, and the thing is, is that once you get into this industry, you realize that there are lots of things you can do in the industry. You don't have to just do one thing. I don't have to just play the bass. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I can also uh, license music. I can write music for television. I've learned how to produce. I'm learning, you know, learning engineering and how to record. I, um, I know how to make deals. I know how to read contracts. I know how to, um, I know how to create content, you know, like, so there are lots of things that you, lots of skills you build over the years. And so there are just different aspects of the industry you can begin to focus on. And I think I had to realize that, that I was just thinking about my life in one way and I needed to start thinking about it in multiple ways. And, and I've gotten there. Um, I really have gotten there this year. You know, there are lots of, lots of cool things I'm working on that, um, that, and, and there are lots of, you know, different uh, revenue streams that I've been able to create uh, through music, mm-hmm. through different aspects of music. Um, and because of the different skills that I have that, I, that I've picked up over the years. Um, so that's, so that's a beautiful thing. I don't see myself not having something to do with music. You know, it was really just, do I want to continue beating my head, um, trying to be, um, actually just, yeah, trying to, trying to focus on only being one thing in this industry. You know what I mean? And yeah. once I got over that, I was able to say, yeah, you could do some of that and you could do some of this and you could do some of that. And yeah, you can take it upon yourself to go do a little bit of that. You know what I mean? So I think overall I've, 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 um, I've come to terms with the fact that I'm going to be in this industry for a while in some capacity or another. Well, I think that's great. And I'm glad you got to that place with everything. <laughs> No, no, I mean, for real, because cause it's, it's definitely, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, you know, it's, it's not the easiest thing to always like know, okay, what's happening today? What's going on? Because, yeah. um, because I don't think, I don't really think people do one thing anyway, you know, I mean, I think there's oh. this, there's this myth that that happens, you know, but I, I would imagine if people really examined um, the kinds of things that people who are known for just one thing, I'm sure they did lots of things too, you know, like I'm sure maybe that wasn't their career. Like, but I'm, I would imagine like, uh, you know, like I don't know that much about James Jamerson, but I would imagine he had other interests with music besides playing bass. You know, like I know he was, he was a student and that kind of thing. And I don't know. I think it's, I mean, the industry tends to notice people for one thing, but the irony is it's probably multiple things that people are always doing that, uh, that's, that's how it works for people, you know? Um, so I, I don't, I think that's probably like, it feels weird because, you know, like how you define who you are, you know, there's, there's always a strong connection between the ego and what you do, but 
that can also become a really big trap. So I think out of preservation, doing a lot of things is probably the best approach, you know, cause then you're not, you don't feel as bad if you have a bad day playing, you know, um, like, you know, you can kind of like assess it from a really balanced place versus everything I have is put in this one thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. Um, well, what's, what's next for you? I mean, what's, uh, what's the, Well, I have to do an audition at four. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I meant like literally or figuratively. No, I, know, I, know. I was being silly. That's like, <laughs> it's like that, you know, the, the famous, they say Jocko, they ask Jocko, so what's, what's, what's right. next? He's like, give me a gig. Right, right, right. <laughs> no. Um, let's see who knows i'm i'm getting ready to actually this week is kind of busy on friday i'm doing this uh talk with this london college of music we're gonna do an interview and then i'm gonna get on this berkeley chat with all these dope female musicians terry lynn nice. Garrison, nikki glasby um uh uh uh, uh shit oh, i hate when I do that. you know <laughs> getting all the people allison miller um it's going to be, it's going to be Victor, Steve, it's going to be crazy. And it's going to be crazy because who knows what we're really going to talk about. Uh, uh, Rhonda Smith is going to be on there. Susan Hagen. Sweet. Um, yeah, it's going to be dope. Um, but I'm actually getting ready to do a gig with Fantasia too next weekend. That's going to be like one of the at home things. And tonight at seven 30, I played uh bass on the Apollo thing that's happening. <laughs> Oh, cool. I'd be forgetting everything, man. Yeah. And I'm so excited because Ray Chu is the musical director and I've never worked with him before. Um, and so I was excited when they gave me a call and asked if I would uh, play bass on the opening number. I think Vernon's playing on that opening number too. Oh, cool. Did you record that from home? Yeah, I recorded it at the crib and then uh, recorded myself uh, playing, playing it, video and audio. And then I made the rookie mistake of when I bounced the damn stem, I bounced the stem with the whole, instead of soloing the stem, I bounced with the fucking whole track on it and was like, <laughs> like an idiot. And just, oh, that was so embarrassing because it, I do know how to bounce stems, you know what I mean? Yeah, it happens. Um, <laughs> but I'm excited about that um, because he's definitely somebody I'd like to work, you know, with more, you know, people like that. Um, and to be recognized, uh, by people like that, you know, to come and play bass. There are lots of great bass players in the world. So, um, that's, that's awesome. You're doing that. Yeah. I'm excited. Um, but yeah, we're also plug, like I said, plugin Alliance is releasing the stems for hire. I'm getting ready to, of course I'm working on new music and I really am working on new music. I'm taking the summer off from school so that I can focus on writing and creating because I've, I'm just a little bit over, I'm, I need to step away from school for a minute. It's just, it's too much. Um, yeah, it's a big deal. It it's is. A it's a lot to do. It is every day and uh, all the reading and then, yeah. Mm. So I'm excited about that. And I'll probably take a trip this summer with my wife. We're probably going to drive down to Atlanta and Miami and see our families and then come back up. But, you know, just taking some personal time and balancing life and music. And I'm working on a children's album. Um, 
because I like children's music and I like to be inspiring and encouraging. And that's really the only thing that keeps me going is that I can be an inspiration to somebody uh, given the gifts that I've been given. So that's what I want to continue to do and continue to be in this industry. And I can't think of a better way uh, to do that than to give music to children to make them feel inspired and empowered and, um, so kind of, I'm working on that too. So, you know, I'm just trying to stay busy. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Well, look, I really appreciate you coming on and I chatting with me. I'm sorry for just being talkative. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you too. I'll talk to you soon. Big thanks to Divinity for having that talk with me. You can find her on social media. She's on Instagram, Twitter. You can go to her website, Divinity Rocks. That's with two X's, divinityrocks.com. New episode will be out this Thursday. Thanks for listening, people. Be well.